continue to go to the word of the Lord, let's turn to the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 17. I'll focus today on verses 12 through 18. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it will accomplish your purposes as you've promised, that the same sun that hardens the ice will melt the clay. So we pray that as you've promised, your word will not return void, that you would use the hearing and preaching of your word this morning to change hearts, to effect great change in the world, that your kingdom would come. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So I'm just going to read chapter 17 so we have the context of the first half that we went through last week. The word of the Lord. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that, that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out this purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The word of the Lord. So as we see this and, and, and read this, as we continually uh, you know, making our way through the book of Revelation, we kind of, you know, you can't help but to think of the topic of war. And so 
I imagine there's, you know, how many sermons will open talking about, you know, this topic this morning. And yet here it is right here in our text, and so we really can't avoid it. And we have to remember that all war, every battle, every violent, aggressive act is ultimately the physical manifestation of a spiritual warfare. And again, as we quote, uh, quite repeatedly here, Ephesians 6.12, which is, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, we are told to take up the armor of God. And it includes, in the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And God's word here gives us a behind-the-scenes glimpse as the spiritual battle plays itself out in our world. So beginning in verse 12, in Revelation 17, as we've read, we see that there are these ten horns that you saw are ten kings. So a horn always represents power. And so, and in the Old Testament, we're going to see, particularly in Daniel chapter 7, um, is where this language comes from. This is where uh, the writer of Revelation wants us to go to say, yeah, how do we interpret these things? And so we're, we're going to turn to Daniel 7 in just a minute. Um, but these ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. So they haven't actually, this is a future thing he's talking about. At least it was future at the time of his writing. And it appears to be, this is something that's still future as well. And we'll see some of these things, a good word is trans-temporal. It goes across time. So we're not just looking for this to manifest itself at some last date. We have to recognize that we live in the last days today. The time from the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God the Father until his final second coming is the last days. But since we do talk about his second coming, we know there will be a last day. So it is fair to say that the days leading up to that last day will be, in a different way, the last days. But the Bible doesn't really distinguish those greatly enough because the church is living throughout this entire period. The book of Revelation is not just for those people who are living at their very last time, the very time just before Christ comes. Uh, it's meant to be for the church so we can see what's going on with the church as well. But we do see a ramping up of power. And if, if you watch any of these movies or documentaries about World War I, World War II, and you see the bombings and you see it's just like, how do you not live through that and not believe? I mean, it's the war that's all world wars. You know, what does that mean? Does that mean, you know, oh, we're just going to have peace after this because we're going to finally destroy our enemy? Or does it mean this is the end of the world? This is, Christ is coming back. I mean, how do you not do that? You, you already see in your own mind and heart how you tend to go there when you see things happening in our world that seem quite bad. And you will go, and the whole world goes, this must be the end of the world. This must be it. I mean, you know, for our generation, we, as I would say, you know, we ain't seen nothing compared to what people in the past have been through. And we're just looking back at glimpses of World War I too. I mean, imagine living back in medieval days and things, I mean, Vikings and all, it was just you know, horrific things occurring. So that uh, the horrific evil that Satan can accomplish in the world is terrifying. And so the call for the saints, the call for the church is, 
How do we therefore live? Because we are the hope. We are the light. We are the brightness. We are, we, you may look at powerful armies, powerful forces that may array themselves against you, but you're just seeing the physical manifestation of a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan prowling around like a roaring lion. So as Satan rallies forces to attack different people, places, things happening, uh, what we have to recognize is what we're seeing in Revelation. In fact, the evil powers tremble before us. It doesn't mean that some manifestation of these powers in the earthly realms can't overcome us in some different physical ways, but it's only a very temporary manner that is able to do this. And the actual battle that's being fought is they are the grasshoppers and we are the giants. And we need to keep this in mind as we're uh, on our knees and standing before the Lord as we uh, are not to tremble in terror um, over difficulties that, that would come our way no matter how they may manifest themselves. Because it says, again in verse 12, that they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. So what verse 12 seems to be look, talking about here is... Uh, the number 10 is a number of completion, you know, fullness in the whole Bible. But in the book of Revelation, the number 10 is only used of Satan and his powers. You don't see, you know, 10 being a number for anything other than these um, satanic powers. And so you have these, these last uh, kings that seem to be this, these 10 that are working together. And, and don't try to look for, okay, that's the European Union, there's 10 there, so it's going to be them, it's got to be that. It's like that stuff changes so much, and it's not talking about that. That may be a manifestation of this, but this means there is a complete unanimity of focus and purpose and power of all the governments, all the kings and rulers of the world at some point where there is just this focused attention that is placed on um, the church. And it may not even be that each of them are even thinking, I'm going after the church. They may do that, but it's the power behind them is focused on these things. And so they receive authority of kings for, for just one hour. And I read somewhere, I don't know if this is true or not, I didn't, I didn't look it up, but it's like, in, at least at the time in the ancient Near East and the Greek, that's like the smallest uh, unit of time that they have, that they didn't talk in seconds and things like that. I meant that, don't Google it wait till you get home or something. But it's a very short period of time. It's a symbolic number, obviously. So symbolic period of time. Keep this in mind when we get to the millennium, that these numbers and these things represent something. So if it's just an hour, you see what that means. It's short. I mean, nobody wants to have to go through torture for an hour. Uh, that's a long time, depending on what's going on. But what he's saying is this is going to be a, a short time. In verse 13, these are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. And we've seen the beast recognize is the evil, demonic government, political power that controls armies and things like this. It's these powers behind those powers. And all these worldly kings, imagine this, they're giving their authority to the beast. They're not just getting their authority from it. They're not just all together. Now we are forming this. They are actually giving their power and authority to the beast. And they will make war on the lamb. And the lamb is 
Jesus Christ. We've seen that very clearly in the book of Revelation. It's very plain that there's no doubt by anybody that this is talking about Christ. So they're going to make war, war on the Lamb. They're going to make war on the church. They're going to make war on the bride of Christ. Everything that stands in opposition to this worldly system and to Satan. And the Lamb will conquer them. So this is the end. I mean, you know, hopefully maybe you skipped to this part of the, the Bible first to know this is the, the point of Revelation is Christ wins. The church wins. This is a done deal here. The Lamb will conquer them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him are called, and, and those with him, this is us, called and chosen, Eclectes, that's the word also to be translated elect. That's where we get that word. Called, elect, and faithful. That's us. And you might think, okay, I can go with the called. I know I'm called, chosen, and faithful. How faithful are we? But that's what he's calling us. Faithful. Faithful and true. So we're to be faithful. Faithful to what? Faithful to who? What is faith? I was in the White Horse Inn on the way in this morning, and they're uh, talking about the world looks at the concept of faith as, as having a great confidence in something, whatever it is. You've got to have faith in something. As long as you have faith in something, you're going to be all right. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is about the object of faith. If, and the analogy I use a lot is you're, you're falling off the edge of a cliff and you see two branches and you have equal faith in both of them and you reach out to one and it just lets you go. It doesn't matter how much faith. You place too much faith. You place faith in the wrong one. But if you place your faith in the right one that's strong and sturdy and can hold you, then did your faith save you or did the branch save you? And it's, it's both because you had faith and confidence enough to reach out. I heard, saw a video somewhere, some cartoon or something where you know, God or somebody said, reach out and you know, grab my hand. And it's like, no, I don't trust you enough for that. And they just fall. You know, so it's like your faith is that thing that connects you to, to whatever it is that you're reaching out for, that have confidence in. And what God says is, those who have faith in me can have great confidence because the object of your faith is what is so great. So even if your faith is as a mustard seed, it takes a tiny bit of faith. That God uses this. And then we look at who he's called. So first, let's go to Daniel chapter 7 so that we can see these what the ten um, horns are and, and where it comes from, so you don't think I just kind of make all these things up. So Daniel chapter 7. It's still in the, the longer prophets so after Ezekiel and things. You can find Daniel chapter 7. And we'll begin reading in, in verse 17. I'm just going to read 17 through 22. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 17. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High, that's us, the holy ones, the people who are believers, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, amen. Or and ever, it says. The kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So, yeah, that's the end. We got it. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze 
and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. Now we're not going to get caught up in little details here. We could, but we're looking at the bigger picture here, 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. That's bad news. Now we saw in Revelation there's a time when Satan will prevail over the saints. There are times when it appears that Satan may have won and that the church is, has not has been defeated. But then as Revelation says, it only lasts three and a half weeks and then there's a resurrection of the church that they see the reality uh, the world sees the reality that sat satanic forces see the reality of the indestructibility of the church even as it appears to have been destroyed so verse 21 I looked this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came which we see it's Jesus Christ in the in Revelation in the New Testament we see this as well when, when the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So this is what the book of Revelation is pointing back to as we read about this, this beast with the ten horns. This is very clearly that comes from Daniel 7. And verse 21 is interesting in Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 21, I looked and this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So if you're looking in chapter 17 of Revelation, we see the reversal of this Daniel 7.21 and the fulfilling of Daniel 7.22, which is the kingdom is given to the saints. And this is what will happen in the very last time. And then back in Revelation 17, verse 14, it says, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, which is the reversal of Daniel 7, 21. And then why? Well, it's because Daniel says he's the Ancient of Days. And we know, well, that's talking about God the Father, or God, Yahweh. How is this talking about Jesus? Because we're going to see Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, equal in power and glory, same in substance. The Son is no less God than the Father. The Father is no less God than the Son. The Holy Spirit is no less than God the Father, God the Son. They all have different roles that they play here on earth. But they are, there is one God. Equal in power and glory. Three in person. And it says here, they will make war on the Lamb. The Lamb will conquer him. For he, who he? The Lamb, who is he? Lord of lords and King of kings. Jesus. Lord of lords and king of kings. So if you're ever asked, you know, show me somewhere in the Bible where it says Jesus is God. Well, here's a place. There are other places, but this is pretty clear. Um, so, I mean, there are different Jehovah's Witnesses, people like this, is good places to go uh, for them to, to see this. But look in Deuteronomy 10.17. So if you're able, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. And when you see the word LORD, that's in all caps, but the L is bigger than the O-R-D, that means that's the tetragrammaton, which is the four letters in Hebrew, uh, yod heh vav -Heh, Yahweh, 
So this is the covenantal name of God that was revealed in the burning bush. For Yahweh, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless, and it goes on. But Yahweh, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords. And then we go to Revelation chapter 17. They made war on the Lamb and conquered them because the Lamb is the Lord of lords and King of kings. He's Yahweh. He is the Lord. This is our God. And he fights for us. And he is forever united to humanity. Truly man, truly God, forever. Calling to us. Uniting us to himself. When he fights against Satan, his doom is sure. And when we see later this great battle that's coming forth, the church is with him attacking on this final day where you're not going to see all the Satan countries battling all the Christian countries because the church has taken over countries and we're ruling armies and tanks and stuff or something. It's like obviously, this is, this is spiritual warfare, which is more powerful than physical warfare. When uh, In the Old Testament, um, Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, there was, there was a war. They sent out Israel to go out and war against the Philistines. They weren't doing very well because they were faithless. And so they had the great idea, let's take the ark, put it out front, and um, then we'll defeat our armies. It's like, you know, people have these little lucky charms or something like this. You know, it's like they have these talisman that they use. And so they were using Christ like this. They were using the ark like this. So they took the ark, and guess what happens? The Philistines capture the ark. They take it away. And bad things continue to happen. There's judgment. There's death on Israel's side for playing and toying with the things of God as if the ark of God is like in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. That, you know, in that movie, the Germans wanted to get it to have this great power. That's what these uh, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were thinking. We have this great weapon that we can use. We just throw Jesus out there in front of us and he'll fight our battles for us. And that's what we do. We live our lives. We get ourselves in terrible messes. We do these things. And it's like, where's Jesus? Throw him out there. Take care of it, Jesus. He doesn't do that. He, he doesn't do that. And so we have to be careful that we're not using Jesus in that way. We're not trying to use him as a political power. We're not trying to use him as a military leader. That was all the mistakes that were made when he first came. Let's not repeat those. Because what we need to recognize is that these physical battles are nothing when the God of the universe says, that's it. I will scatter your enemies. I will throw them into confusion. And so we have to make sure that we're praying to our God who is Lord of Lords and, and, and King of Kings. Why do they make war on the Lamb? And it's because of this great hatred of Satan for this and for man who is blinded in his sin, tends to hate the things of God. And so in Revelation 17, verse 15, the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Now this, this well, let me keep reading here. <clears throat> and the ten horns that you saw, they are the, and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose 
by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So we see God being in control of all of these things. And, and we might look at that and we say, you know, I heard, I think it was Sinclair Ferguson said one time that God uses sin sinlessly. So he can use, you know, somebody's sinful attitude. It's like he used Pharaoh to, to chastise his people. He uses um, different um, evil people and beings for his purposes without being sinful at all. And so what ends up happening, though, God uses the evil of the chaotic forces to turn against itself and defeat itself. And so that's why you make sure you're on the right side of this thing. It, it can look to the world, I want to be on the side of power. I want to be on the side of control. I want to be on the side, as long as my team is in control, then we can control what everybody else is thinking and doing, then, hey, I'm all right with that. But what happens is that turns on itself, that the very people who give power to this eventually are consumed by this thing as well. If, you know, Satan is not one to share his you know, power or anything. And it just happens, and then God controls this in such a way. And so we see this harlot Babylon. It's the socio-civil, economic, false, religious world system. And then the beast, there's this power, this construction of, of armies and kings. And they, they work together for a while. And then toward the end, and maybe at different times throughout history, what's going to end up happening is they're going to turn on that world system. It's going to turn on itself. Everything that these forces are using to get people to follow, they're, they're going to turn on that, even the false systems of worship. And so you're like, well, how? This doesn't make any sense. How do these things, how do these things happen? And we see it pretty clearly if you turn to 1 Timothy 6. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So you see how this power dynamic is supposed to be working within the church. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce... Now, see, this is, this is satanic. This is demonic. This is evil. And this is when... Imagine powerful, powerful, powerful forces, and this is what's going on in their hearts and minds, and this is what happens. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words. They produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, 
flee these things. Now, this is our call. This is the way we fight the good fight of faith as we may be going through whatever. <clears throat> flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. In case you thought, well, it was in Revelation before, and as symbols, you can't really say Jesus was the King of kings and Lord of lords. No, very plain. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, and whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be prideful and full of self-esteem, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And so we see how evil works. We see how power perverts. Even within the church, we can see how a love of money, a desire to be wealthy, a desire for the goods of this world can quickly turn into self-destruction. And so you have these great, huge, powerful forces of the world, and you can see where that just becomes destructive. It's not going to turn suddenly into a benevolent force for good in the world where we've defeated with power all of these countries, and now that they've come under our rule, it's all going to be good. Now we're fine. Now we're, now we're good people. You know, it's just, it doesn't happen. It will, they will consume themselves and eventually what God calls us to happen, and it's repeated over and over here, especially in the last chapters of Revelation, is he causes there to be this unity of purpose that really begins to focus on the church more and more. So that when God, it's like he gets them all in one place and can just stomp them down with one step. And that's what happens. And the church grows as it sees the reality of its enemy. If, if all we see, and this is what can be a problem with dispensational theology and some different types of theologies that, that look at end times a little bit different, if you see your enemy as this country, that country, this country, there's Christians there. There's churches there. There's underground churches. There's above-ground churches. I mean, China, for all of its evils and its problems and locking up pastors and everything it's doing, there may be more Christians in China than here. And who knows the systematic theologies that are coming up? Who knows the songs that are being sung? I mean, they, they have to go into hiding. And then some of them are like, I'm not going into hiding. We're the light of the world. We're going to do it. Bang on your doors. Kicking your windows and banging your doors. And they come in and they grab you in the middle of the night, just like they used to do. Same playbook, different country, different people. Sometimes the same country. 
Don't think it couldn't happen here. Train up your children in the way they should go so if things get dark, they have a light. You've got to do that. Don't expect your children to, just because you went through training, doesn't mean that when you have children, they're going to have the same muscles you had. They never lifted weights because you, you haven't caused them to. Make sure you're teaching your children the difference between darkness and light. Make sure you're teaching your children how to live as children of light. Amos 3.6 says, Does disaster befall a city unless the Lord has done it? And that's very interesting. Does disaster befall a city unless the Lord has done it? And we're quick to be like Jesus' disciples and see the blind man and say, hey, who sinned, that man or his parents? So we'd be quick to see a city maybe coming under destruction and say, well, the Lord has done it. That must be a pretty bad city. You know, God's using Russia to come in and do his bidding there. It's like, eh, God is in control. You got that part right. But you don't know what he's doing. Because what Jesus said when they said, who sinned, this blind man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. This happened so that my power and my might might be glorified before you at this moment. So why is God allowing these things to happen? Why is God in control of these things? For his glory, for his good. Because Jesus Christ, even this moment, is building his church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he will use adversity. He will use trials. He will use storms. He uses all of these things. There's a story in the Bible about Peter walking on the water and beginning to sink. I mean, what if there had been no storm? You know, Peter, don't get this wrong. Peter was jumping out of the boat. <laughs> he was freaking out. And he saw Jesus. He wasn't thinking. Because if he'd have been thinking, he wouldn't have jumped out. Of he'd have been paralyzed. He didn't think. He looked at Jesus. He jumped. He ran to Jesus. He saw an object of faith. He saw something in the storm. He didn't know what he was doing. He just knew I had to flee this and get to that. And that's what he did. Then he realized what he had done and started thinking about it and started to sink. That's good, too, because we see what Jesus did. Jesus didn't go, well, I guess we lost one, fellas. He should have, he should have hung on to that one. But Jesus' right hand reaches him, pulls him up. Ye of little faith, why do you doubt? That's the message. Faith, that is the victory that overcomes the world. Conquerors, Nikeo, that's what happens in here. This is what the Lord has for us. He is the king of kings, all kings. He is the Lord of lords, all lords. He is our king. He is our Lord. He tells us in the most difficult trying situations, you know, you have the psalm, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. That's the message. And he is powerful. And he is good. So we're to live as children of light. Amidst a crooked and twisted generation. God is at work. The gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. We are the church. Be the shining city on the hill. And that requires courage and strength of character and great faith. But a conquering faith is rarely developed in times of ease. But whose life is really at ease? I mean, there's levels. But nobody has perfectly good, easy lives. They may look like that sometimes. So we had to rise to the challenge of our trials by facing them with faith, faith in Christ. 
Satan is a defeated enemy, and he knows it, and he knows his time is short. And he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. Don't get caught off guard. Keep watching. Stay awake. It's the stay in the herd. <laughs> stay in the church. Stay surrounded. It's the, it's the ones that are you know, wandering off or the ones that get taken by the lion. And so we have to be careful of this. And this is how God has loved the world. He gave his only begotten son so that the believers in him would not perish but have eternal life. And that's the good news. That's the message that we have to be broadcasting to the troops. That's what we had to be broadcasting to the enemies. That's what we had to be broadcasting to those who are, who are perishing. That's what we had to preach to ourselves. The Philippian jailer said to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so what would your reply be to the jailers? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. There is a war going on. And it didn't just start with an invasion. There's a, there's a war going on. So you have to fight the good fight of faith. Be ready in season and out of season to be able to give a reason, an apology, an apologetic for the reason for the hope that's within you. Let your light so shine before men they see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So if you're, you know, with your family in Ukraine, hiding in a, in a basement or other parts of the world where people are under attack for their faith or, or whatever, do you have hope? You know, what's the rallying speech you might give? You know, and a little child to lead them. If you're a child in here right now, a little boy, a little girl, what might you say? You look around, you see people fearful. And you, what do you say? You know, what, about, what about Jesus? I thought he was like some kind of king and in charge and he is in control of everything, isn't he? And he save us, isn't he our father? You know, I pray that our children are trained enough and believers strong enough in their faith to be able to preach such things to us as well. And I want to close with Philippians chapter 4 because I think this is how we are to be engaged. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Again, I say rejoice. It's really cool. Paul's in prison when he writes this. I mean, it's just like he's preaching to himself, preaching to us. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, in other words, your, um, your gentleness, your ability to think through, you know, <clears throat> the place is on fire. Everybody's freaking out. And you're like, fire routes this way. Follow me. I don't care who, how old you are. I don't care what's going on with you. If you, know, if you say it with confidence and you look like you know where you're going and you start headed toward the door, people might just start following you. So this is what you let your reasonableness be made known to everybody. The Lord is at hand. He's right there with us. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, so that means there may be no logical reason for it if you just look around, but as a believer sees these things, then this peace of God that surpasses all understanding, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation that I am to be content are you content I mean there are levels of contentment granted but are you content what's that mean contentment and if you're not content at some level, then we need to learn how to be content in whatever situation, such as, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I love verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So contentment with godliness. Contentment does not mean I am perfectly happy with everything. I'm going to go frolicking through the woods and what's the, the, the hills are alive with the sound of music all the time. You know, the Nazis came there too. Dog, I don't even think about that. Man, tell you what, it's always, you know, you got beauty and you got chaos. Beauty and chaos, escape, freedom, you know, all these things. But in Christ, he's our only hope. And he gives us his table and he says, I'm with you. I'm going to feed you through difficult things. Contentment does not mean you're happy about everything. It just means that I know that in whatever circumstance I find myself, I have to just say, this too shall pass. He has something more for me to do, something for me to learn, something for me to be praying for, something yet to come. You're in the car. You're going somewhere. You ask your parents, my goodness, how much further? Just a little further. Just a little further. Just a little further. Please be quiet. Just a little further. That's us a lot. This is a little further. And we're told that this present darkness, this present struggle, it's not worthy of even being compared to the glory that awaits us. So we have to stay focused on the end, on the prize. And he gives us a taste of that today. And he says, you're receiving the gospel. But if you receive it by faith, you're receiving me. And I'm going to give this to you now. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your love, your strength. Pray for the endurance of those who are hurting. And not just people who are under physical manifestations of war, but people who are experiencing lots of um, physical ailments, um, difficulties with family, difficulties in life, um, all sorts of trials and tribulations. We're, we're not promised anything about an easy life but we are told there's a way to that you strengthen us so we pray for your strength and that you would help us to be a strengthening person for others as well and so we pray these things and thank you for this meal we're about to receive from your hand in christ's name we pray amen